0: This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank. Some things should be boring, like banking, boring is safe and reliable. You don't want your bank to be exciting or unexpected. Unexpected is for podcasts about bizarre scientific revelations, not banks. PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Bank. PNC Bank, National Association, member FDIC. I know I usually save my secrets for the end of the episode, but I'm going to tell you my secret favorite candy. It's Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. It's really Reese's anything. But Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the thing that I'm like, have I had a bad day? I get these. Have I had a good day? I get these. Chocolate, salty peanut butter, the textures. I love everything about them. Also that there's two. So I'm like, oh, I get this one for later, which is one second later. Anyway, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. I love you. That's all. If you're me, you can shop Reese's Peanut Butter Cups now at a store near you. Found wherever candy is sold. And I am. Oh, hey, it's the guy on next door who is like, does anyone want some zucchinis? Because no one warned him that unattended zucchinis can grow to be the size of a human baby. Allie Ward, back with an instant classic episode of Ologies. This is an episode you're going to listen to more than once. I'm going to tell you right now. Not because the subject matter demands it for comprehension, but because it is the very ethos of Ologies, all wrapped up in the most soothing, mellow audio hug you will ever lay ears on it's overlooked beauty. It's following bliss. It's myth busting. Okay, let me just run through the things. Let's get to the show. So thank you to all the supporters at patreon.com slash ologies. You can join for as little as a buck a month and submit questions, perhaps hear yours asked in future episodes. Thanks to everyone wearing ologies shirts and hats and bikinis and new face coverings at ologiesmerch.com. Link is in the show notes. Tag yourself in hashtag ologiesmerch on Instagram. We'll repost you. Thanks to everyone who rates and subscribes and leaves reviews. read all of them. They help ology stay at the top of the science charts. Thank you, I Like Cheese Rich, who wrote, not only is information put in accessible language, but it also opens up your eyes to all the wonderful things there are to know and do in the world. Oh, I Like Cheese Rich? You have no idea. This is right in line with that. If anyone else left a review this week, I 100% read it and appreciated it, including some suggestions for future episodes on rocks and squirrels and the unhoused crisis appreciated. Okay, bryology. Moss talk. Bryo in Greek straight up means moss. So thank you, Greek. That was quick. So this bryologist is perhaps the most beloved in her field. She got her BS in botany from SUNY Environmental Science and Forestry and a master's and a PhD in botany from the University of Wisconsin. She has published numerous papers on mosses and plants and traditional ecological knowledge. She is a distinguished teaching professor. She covers botany, ethnobotany, indigenous environmental issues. She's been a TED speaker. She's an enrolled member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation and the author of two huge books, The gorgeous Gathering Moss, A Natural and Cultural History of Mosses, and the New York Times bestselling Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants. Many, many people have suggested and begged that I get her on the show. So thank you to Brain Pickings' own Maria Popova for the nudge in her direction. Uh, We set up a time to meet virtually I have listened to this ologist's velvety soft voice via audiobooks so much that I was so nervous. I was afraid I'd be too loud or jarring or I'd make an air horn noise with my mouth. So I did my best just to keep calm. And this episode is just a gorgeous stroll through the forest floor, an eye-opening loop squinting gaze at hidden mysteries and an intro to your new hero. We cover what is a moss? Where do they grow? Can you eat them? Should you have one as a bath mat? Are they soft to nap on? What's up with lichen? How to incorporate your native teaching into your science work or how to recognize and appreciate indigenous knowledge without appropriating it? And moss smoothies with the moss wonderful biologist, Dr. Robin Wall Kimmerer. Well, there's that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so now you're talking to me from uh, from New York right now? Yes, I live in upstate New York. How are the seasons changing right now? Oh, it is just the
1: height of June. I live out in farm country, and so it's haymaking weather. So the air is just full of the wonderful scent of new-cut hay and wildflowers it's really sort of the the peak of photosynthesis right now so it's, (laughs) it's, it's pretty lovely
0: I know from from reading you know your books that um you've you've always been obviously drawn to the outdoors do you remember some of your first kind of interactions with looking at plants and looking at at wild growth you know um
1: it, it, it's really almost impossible for me to um, pinpoint that because I just grew up in the natural world. It was always part of my, my being and, and part of my family experience. And so it's, it's hard to say there was a, a moment when I really connected. Um, but I, I had the benefit of a rural childhood and, and parents who were um, avid outdoors people and, and naturalists and uh, I think that I was mostly shaped by these old farm fields that were around where I grew up. That meadow kind of um, array of wildflowers and wild strawberries and and um, all of that was, was certainly the, the formative landscape for me as a naturalist. I'd call it my backyard, except it was, you know, the landscape, not my yard. <laughs> <laughs>
0: And uh what about uh, different plants? What drew you to mosses in particular? Mm. you know it's a it's an odd
1: story in that. Um, I've always been, of course, drawn to plants. And when I went away to college to be a a botany major, I took every botany class I could get my hands on, and there were a lot of them. And the only one I didn't take was the ecology of mosses. (gasps) No. Really, really, I left it till the last. I thought, oh, really? You know, it's just this (laughs) tiny little green film. How could that be interesting? (laughs) So I'm really familiar with this notion of the overlooked world because I did it myself.
0: Right under my nose.
1: I was really interested in, in forest ecology. And uh, so I overlooked the mosses, but then I took one class in it. That moment, I remember, it was the first day of my ecology of mosses class and putting a lens on the on the mosses and seeing a forest in miniature. And it was love at first sight. Oh. Uh, so...
0: Yeah. And, uh, I remember in gathering Moss, you mentioned, that, um, that you had a kind of a loop, uh, a magnifying glass and, uh, and you, you spent some of your, some of your money to get your own. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> and I still have it. When I think of the innumerable objects I have lost in my life, I have never <laughs> lost my loop. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and, um, you know, this is such a, this is obviously a stupid question, but, um, but What is a moss for someone who doesn't know? How do you even define a moss?
1: I'm glad you asked because when people hear about my passion for mosses, they look at me really funny and they think like, you mean that green scum? Like, no, Uh, no, I don't mean green scum. Mosses are... Um, the oldest plants on the planet, people say they're primitive. Really, they're very sophisticated, I think. But they're primitive because they're so small and, and and simple. That's why people classify them that way. But mosses are members of the plant kingdom, the first plants to colonize land 350 million years ago. When I think about what is a moss, a moss is really a miniature Forest.
0: Did I just purchase a $13 loop to go look at mosses and pretend like I'm in a movie called Honey? I Shrunk the Bryologist. I moss definitely did. And are they? Uh, do they have root systems that um, are much different than trees? How are they able to cling to so many surfaces? Well, that's really the important question. You know, when you said, "What is a moss?" <laughs> um,
1: oftentimes, the best way to answer that is what do mosses not have? Allie, they don't even have roots. Um, really? Nope. These are not rooted plants, and that's how they can cling. They do have these little thread-like uh, structures called rhizoids, which allow them to attach, um, but they're not um, absorptive the way roots are. They, they don't have the capacity to take up water and, and nutrients. They're really
0: po- just points of, of attachment So think of a muscle, like a bivalve attaching to a rock or a boat. They're not eating through those fibers. They're just hunkered down. And so when we think about what mosses are, one
1: of the ways to to characterize them is by what they don't have in comparison to all the plants that are around us. They don't have roots. They don't have flowers. Um, They don't have the xylem and phloem, that vascular tissue that allows water to be moved within the plant. They don't have any of that. Hmm. And yet they're able to occupy virtually every habitat on the planet Mm -hmm. and um, endure all kinds of uh, different kinds of environments. So they're super simple, but in their simplicity is kind of the key to their success.
0: And so without flowering, they reproduce with spores? They do. Yeah.
1: Um, Just like in higher plants, there are females and males. There are eggs and sperm tucked in among the little tiny leaves of, of the moss and... You know, like uh, flowering plants, we know about insects moving pollen around for fertilization. For mosses, it's they need water for that to happen. There has to be a continuous bridge of water between male and female for the sperm to swim along, sometimes just along the surface of a leaf, um, to
0: go find the female. So the water acts like the ultimate wingman, just passing along sperm like a note in class. Like, hey, uh, my friend wanted you to have this. That boom, you're pregnant with moss babies. And once the sperm
1: um does fertilize that egg, yeah, then it sends up this little stalk called a sporophyte that mm-hmm. will puff out clouds of of spores that will go off and germinate. They don't make seeds, but they, they work from the dispersal of spores.
0: And so all of this is happening in miniature when we're taking a walk through the forest and we just maybe see a green log and take it for granted. All of this drama is happening. All of this drama, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, and and you know,
1: it's like anything, the closer you look, the more drama you see. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you start to set aside those notions of what mosses don't have and say, okay, I, I think of mosses as, as real rule breakers in the plant kingdom because they live their lives in ways that are so different than all of the other plants. But yeah, when you start to pay attention, they are um, sick successful uh, because of uh, because of their differences I, th- I guess would be the way to say that
0: yeah you know where can they grow you mentioned that they' they can inhabit all these places other plants can't I'm trying to picture like the outer reaches like where are some of the um, most surprising places mosses have been found
1: <laughs> Um one of mosses can grow pretty much anywhere. The only place that they can't tolerate are salty environments. So they're not in the ocean, they're not on the seashore, um, but um, every place else they, they occur. And we tend to think about mosses as, like you said, being on a wet log, they're in a shady forest, they're next to a waterfall or a stream or a bog, wet places. But one of the most surprising places to find them is in the desert. What? They, yeah, yeah. There are mosses that that live um, off from morning dew in the desert. That's all the water they ever get. Uh, so to me, those are some of the the most surprising. And one of the beauties of of when you ask where do mosses live, there's the big answer of everywhere except for marine environments. But the if we go to a smaller, to think about the world like a moss, mosses live on surfaces. For the most part, you know, think about where you see them. They're, they're on logs, they're on trees, they're on rocks, they're on uh, pavement, um, in, in city mosses. Um, mostly they don't live on the soil, although some do, um, because they're outcompeted by the bigger flowering vascular plants. So they tuck themselves in on all of these surfaces where it doesn't matter if you don't have roots.
0: Oh, that's so smart. It's so clever of them. hmm <laughs> I know that we might take them for granted because our eyesight just doesn't allow us to kind of identify or, or notice their differences. But when you're looking through a loop, how are their edges different and how are their forms and structures different? mm well, they are
1: at, a, at the scale of a loop, and even at the scale of just being on your knees and, and looking carefully, one moss is as different from the next as an oak tree is from a birch tree from a pine tree. Hmm. Um, their leaves might have toothed edges, the leaf might be pleated, the leaf might be round it might be long, it might be like a hair-like extension there's tremendous diversity of, of form within the mosses and that alone is a wonderful introduction to Moses, just to see that they have tiny stems and they have beautifully arrayed leaves. People think about them as a green film almost like like there's nothing structural within it. It's just like a green textile or something, but no, they're tiny little plants um, with world leaves and, and leaves that might be flattened or spiraled. There's tremendous diversity of, of ways to be a moss. And that's why I always say to people, um, people say, oh, well, there's moss on that rock. Really, there's no such thing as moss. There are mosses on huh. any given rock. There might be 10 different kinds of moss that until you start to look, it just looks like a green wallpaper. But then when you stop and look, you see that it's a whole world.
0: Oh. And how are all of those different mosses categorized? How, I know that um they don't have a lot of common names. True. Yeah. Unfortunately, um,
1: mosses within um, sort of Western natural history, shall we say, have been um, so overlooked that for the most part they don't, Even have common names. Although, just, and there weren't even field guides to them until a few years ago. And um, there are now some nice photographic and drawing based field guides and some attempt to put common names on them. Um, I'll admit they're not very interesting common names. (laughs) Hookers, branched carpet moss, you know, it's, you know, not really. Uh, very evocative. Um, <laughs> but maybe as people start looking more, they'll, um, they'll have,
0: have, have better, more colorful names. So when you call a moss, side note, you usually call it by its buttoned up formal Latin name. But since Dr. Kimmerer is like the mm-hmm. bryologist, I asked, is she going to get to name any? Like Kimmerer's shag? or heck and cool green floof, she was like, mm, I'm good. I'm really more of a moss ecologist. Mm-hmm. And
1: so um, I'm more interested in their relationships and their adaptive structures. And the names are convenient ways to discern one from the other. And, of course, they're important in, in understanding evolutionary relationships. But um, my fascination with them is, is much more in uh, what they're doing uh, rather than who
0: they are, in a in a taxonomic sense, oh, that's a great way to put it. Um, and what is their role ecologically? That's a huge question. I realize, but what are they? What are they busy doing? Well, I'm so glad you asked because they're they're tiny little plants, and yet they
1: have a huge role to play. Um, where to start? Um, One of the most important things to think about in terms of the roles that mosses play, is that their whole bodies, their whole way of being is designed at the scale of water drops. They are designed to attract and hold water. And so one of their major roles is to do exactly that. Mosses are like sponges, they hold the water and then they release it slowly into the environment. So they create humidity for example. They also create a moist seed bed for other plants, to seeds to fall on. And then those seeds are essentially falling on to a damp sponge that's holding on to that, to that moisture. Their moisture holding capacity influences nutrients too. Think about that moss on a log that you were invoking. Well, if that moss is keeping the log damp, by virtue of being a a sponge, that means that the decay fungi are hard at work inside that log, breaking it down, recycling nutrients much more effectively than if that log didn't have a moss blanket on it. So, they they keep the environment moist, which allows many many other processes uh, to unfold. That's certainly one of their 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 major rolls. You can you'll you'll have to turn me off, Ellie, because I no, can't go on. <laughs> I love this. My
0: ears are open.
1: Okay. One of the other things that that um that I think people are fascinated to know is that mosses have been termed the coral reef of the forest Ooh. because within a moss there are hundreds of little organisms living in that. When we say, well, the mosses are a miniature forest, they're not only a miniature forest of tiny little trees, but they have, metaphorically, birds living in that canopy. There are all kinds of invertebrates that travel up and down the trunks of the mosses, if you will, from the top of the moss canopy down to the soil. There are herbivores, there are grazers, there are predators, there's a whole food chain happening inside a little clump of of moss. The most
0: insane festival the world has ever seen.
1: So they are tremendous reservoirs of biodiversity, and that's why they get called the coral reefs of the forest.
0: And what eats moss? Who uh, grazes on it?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, For the most part, mosses are so well chemically defended that not much eats them. Within that little microcosm, there are some invertebrates which will eat them. Um, The invertebrates that have piercing mouth parts will sometimes stick that stylet into a moss cell and and take out the contents. Um, There are some uh, larvae that will actually consume the leaf. But for the most part, um, mosses themselves are not consumed. So what do I mean by grazers? Well, within that little moss forest, there are little algae and bacteria and fungi that live on the moist moss leaf surface. And there are insects that come along, invertebrates, excuse me, that come along and actually scrape off the little epiphytic algae and fungi. And that's what they're eating, not the moss. They're living the stuff. They're eating the
0: stuff that's growing on the moss. Okay, side note, epiphytic means stuff that grows on other stuff. So any epiphyte is a plant that grows on another plant and just needs air and moisture. It's not a parasite. It's just chilling. It just uses the other plant for support. Few epiphytes are mosses, air plants, orchids, and Spanish moss, which is not a moss. It's just named after its resemblance to a beard lichen but it's also not a lichen, nor is it from Spain. So whenever you feel bad about yourself, just remember people had three shots to name Spanish moss and they screwed up three times. So you're doing fine, buddy. Oh, and and what kind of chemical defenses are the mosses producing? Well, um,
1: I I guess I should back up to to answer that, to say that, that for the most part, vertebrates do not eat mosses um mm-hmm. the only ones that do birds will sometimes eat the capsules the sporophytes which are protein rich but they almost never eat the leafy part of the plant in large part because that leafy part of the plant is so low in nutrients it's mostly just cell wall and water um there's not a lot of sugars or proteins in those leaves so it's kind of a why bother um, <laughs> you, you, you should shouldn't eat them because they're, they're nothing but um, fiber. And they have a lot of antimicrobials in them. And that's where the chemical defenses come in. I mean, if you think about it, it's a, a superb adaptation because mosses live on wet surfaces, right? They live on bark and soil and logs and rocks. And so therefore, they would be subject, you would think, to attack by fungi, and by, mm-hmm. uh, by bacteria, but they have over a long evolutionary history, they have antimicrobials, primarily polyphenolic compounds and tannins that are in those leaves that um, make them unpalatable as well as, as, as not very rewarding, um, mm. for any organisms to eat them.
0: So if you're like, yes, yes, a polyphenol, but you don't know what one is, don't worry. I gotcha. So a polyphenol is a carbon containing chemical and it's characterized by usually many repeating phenol groups. A phenol is a C6, H5, OH. So polyphenols can do things like release or suppress growth hormones. They can protect plants from UV rays. They can deter moss munchers. They can even signal to other plants like, hey, what's up? Let's ripen. They can also fight infections. And those last types are called phytoalexins, in case you're ever in need of that word. Now, a tannin is a type of polyphenol. And if you've ever had like a dry tongue feeling from red wine or a green banana, or God forbid, you eat an unripe persimmon, which is so cringe-inducing. You just—you might as well just try to get a tongue transplant because it's brutal. It's game over. But yeah, then you've had tannins. Now, what if you ate stuff that other people don't want to eat? Would anyone want to eat you? And has have those antimicrobial properties ever been used by other animals in their own defense against um, microscopic critters? There's a
1: hypothesis that exactly that, because the only place in the world that vertebrates do eat mosses is in the Arctic. Um, uh, Caribou will eat mosses. Lemmings and voles will eat mosses. And um, some of the studies have suggested that while they might eat them, they can't digest them. There's... You know, there's really just not much there to digest, but there's a, a suspicion that they eat them because of their antimicrobial properties um, wow. and that they may do something to to regulate digestion in, in the animals. It's not well understood, but animals do exploit the antimicrobial properties of of mosses, hmm. including things like... Birds. Mosses are are, um, really uh, prime materials for nest building by songbirds. You'll often see songbirds foraging for mosses and they'll be flying around with trailing some brachythesium from their beaks and they build it into their nest. And it's soft, it's insulating, but it's also antimicrobial. And the birds that primarily use mosses in their nests are the songbirds that um, whose babies actually poop in the nest. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those the, the mosses in the nest are thought to have a, a hygienic effect huh. on reducing the, the microbial load in the bird nest.
0: Oh, that's so fascinating. I mean, in lieu of diapers, just have Yes, <laughs>
1: yes. <laughs> Can't body train a tiny bird. <laughs> it's true, but you know, in, in, you're you're right. But in fact, as perhaps you know, mosses have long been used as diapers for by humans.
0: Really? Um, yes. Yes.
1: Okay. Tell me a little bit about that, if you don't mind. Oh no, of course not. Um, yeah, because of mosses' absorbance, this ability to grab onto and hold water like a sponge, they've been very important culturally and ethnobotanically among indigenous peoples uh, worldwide. And one of the very common uses for mosses is in diapering. And because the mosses are so absorbent of water, you put that dry moss um, around the baby. And in fact, um, in, in my culture, in Potawatomi culture, we talk about wrapping the baby in what's called a moss bag. And, and so you stuff that bag with dry moss, and then it's, it's absorbent. It's like a disposable diaper, but it's also antimicrobial. Mm-hmm. So you have this absorbent, antiseptic, soft, insulating, diapering material. Um, <gasps> Amazing. So that's, that's just one of the, the cultural uses of, of, of mosses that, that exploits their ability to hold water and to have these defensive chemicals in them.
0: In Gathering Moss, Dr. Kimmerer also mentions mosses' use as a sanitary napkin, which she describes as difficult information to track down because ethnographers collecting these stories probably did not have vaginas, so they didn't ask. But with all due respect, who knows how many stories have been lost of period havers joking in their native language about having to ride the green carpet that week. Too many to count, and I'm sad about it. I asked her what else she came across in her research. If there's anything about that you'd love to share, I know I'd love to hear it. Sure,
1: Um, there are long lists of of the ways that people have traditionally used mosses. Diapering is, is certainly one of them, but they're also really commonly used for insulation. If you think again about mosses as being absorptive, they're holding water, well, when they're dry, all those little capillary spaces that would hold water when they're dry, they're holding air. So it's, it's air space, it's contained airspace between leaves and between cells. And that's essentially like closed cell foam insulation. Mm. And so people for a long time used mosses as insulation in boots and mittens and hats and bedrolls. And so long as it's dry, it's a um, uh, really effective insulation. It was even used architecturally in um, things like wigwams, traditional wigwams for the winter time would have one dome and then another dome inside it, and then that intervening space would be packed with dry moss, mm. um, an excellent insulating material. So all kinds of, of, of uses for bryophytes.
0: I'm also trying to figure out how they photosynthesize in such under such a, a dense canopy, how are they doing that? Mm-hmm. That's
1: a great question, um, because many mosses are thriving at something like five percent of of the ambient available sunshine. Right,
0: living on only five percent sunlight, like hit the dimmer switch. They don't care. They're moss. They got this.
1: And their balance of chlorophyll A, B, and C is adjusted to the spectrum of, of, of wavelengths of light, which is available to them in the dense shade. Um, so they actually have a, a, a different pigment balance and, and modified uh, photosynthetic pathway that allows them to be efficient at really low light levels. Mm-hmm. But it also comes from the fact that they don't grow very fast, they don't get very big, they don't have really high energetic demands either. So it's, it's, it's this, this matter of adapting to the resources that are available to them
0: mm-hmm. and,
1: and doing it superbly. But at the same time, there are mosses that live in full sun in the desert. Um, and so they're able to uh, utilize different wavelengths of light and they're really well
0: adapted to those to those habitats. So how are these soggy green babies also thriving in the desert? Dr. Kimmerer dishes. But you know this gets us
1: to one of the other totally amazing thing about losses is that think about that desert moss for a second you know it has no xylem and phloem it has no roots it has no way to store water so what happens to it is that it dries up it dries up and becomes this just little black crust on a rock or on in a soil crevice and if you just walked by it you'd think it was dead wait am i dead But it's not dead, it's just waiting. Mm -hmm. And mosses are what are known as poikilohydric, um, which is, well, you know, there's poikilothermic, right? For Mm -hmm. cold-blooded animals, animals whose temperature um, is the same temperature as the environment. For mosses, they're poikilohydric, their water content reflects the water content in the environment. So when it dries out, the moss dries out, but unlike the plant on your windowsill that gets crisp and it's done for, right? The mosses are not done for. They go into this state of, um, I guess we'd just call it sort of a suspended animation. Um, and they're dry and crisp and just sitting there. They can't photosynthesize unless they're wet, but they're just waiting and then it rains. Mm-hmm. And within 25 minutes, you're back to full photosynthesis.
0: Oh wow. It's amazing. Uh you you mentioned it as sort of a crust on our rock, and I know a lot of people are so curious. How can you tell a lichen from a moss? Hey, great question.
1: Because lichens and mosses often live together, right? At the mm-hmm. same scale. And lichens are are not differentiated like a plant into stem and leaves. Lichens are going to be a thallus, right? Um, sometimes powdery, sometimes kind of leathery, um, but they're not going to have a stem with leaves on it. Um, whereas mosses do, and and lichens, which by the way are also poikilohydric, have this amazing water stress tolerance. They tend toward the spectrum of of gray and. Blue and, um, sometimes an olive green, um, as well as the gorgeous orange and yellow ones, colors that you don't see in mosses. But a real grassy greens are, are, are mosses. Well, except for the ones who live in the desert and they are black and crusty. And that the, the blackness of the, of the mosses are caused by these flavonoid pigments and it's essentially sunscreen. The mosses have laid down this, this pigment layer to prevent them from um, having the photosynthesis and the chlorophyll being photodegraded in the
0: intense sunlight. Oh my gosh, that's so smart. What about uh, how airflow influences their growth? What a good question. Thank you oh man, I have been so nervous to meet her because she's so cool and I like her book so much. And every time she says I have a good question, I just want you to know that I'm just like floating on air currents inside, like, "Ah, oh my God, Ah." like I'm blushing talking about it right now. Okay, anyway. Airflow,
1: of course, is going to make things dry out, right? It's going to sweep that water away. It's going to increase evaporation. And because mosses can only photosynthesize when they're both wet and illuminated Airflow can be a great detriment to the growth of of mosses. Um, And that's one of the reasons they are so small, because it turns out that there are places in the world, in the, Mm -hmm. the whole landscape, right, where airflow is minimal. Those places of minimal airflow are what are known as the boundary layer. And a boundary layer is this area of extremely still air, right at the surface of any surface, a log, a rock, a tree, your house, there's this little area of still air. And because in that space, the, the wind doesn't blow, there's just so much friction with, this, with the surface. Um, this region of still air is where mosses live. It's, they live within the boundary layer. And that way they can stay moist. They don't have so much evaporation because of wind flow. Um, And if the mosses got bigger than the boundary layer, which is created by their surface, they would dry out. Hmm. And you can almost
0: measure the depth of the boundary layer by the height of the mosses. Oh, wow. So that's ecologically, that's part of the puzzle then, how it all fits together? Absolutely, absolutely. And
1: that's why in the desert on a rock, the mosses are teensy. You know, they might only be a couple of millimeters tall because they have to stay within the boundary layer of that rock surface. Whereas if they're living under the shady, moist canopy of a hemlock tree, they can be five inches tall Mm -hmm. because there's a much bigger boundary layer. There, in the because the, of the trees overhead and, and 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 the logs that they might be living on, so they can live within that little area. That little boundary layer is not only a place where the um, the wind doesn't blow, where where theoretically it's absolutely still air, but if you think about every surface of having this little boundary layer over it, um, it also means that within that area it's warmer because the sun will shine on the log, let's say, and then it's re-radiated as heat. And that heat doesn't blow away. There's not as much convection. And Mm -hmm. so it's caught in this little boundary layer. The moisture that's coming off from that log gets caught in the boundary layer. So mosses essentially are inhabiting A little greenhouse, a little Mm. greenhouse that lives, that occurs naturally over every surface. A place which is warmer, moister, and as it happens, richer in carbon dioxide than any place else. And that's where the mosses live. They're exploiting these little microhabitats that, rather than trying to dominate and control the habitat, they're taking advantage of the laws of physics and and exploiting these naturally occurring little greenhouses.
0: Ah, you know that brings me to a question. Um, we like to debunk flimflam. We like to bust myths with ologists when we can. But is there truth that moss tends to grow on the north side of trunks, or is that? Total bug. <laughs> it's so great that the one thing people think they
1: know about mosses isn't true. <laughs> no, this idea that mosses moss only grows on the north side of the tree, no. Oh. If you use that for direction finding, you'd be going in circles. <laughs> um, okay, that's good it to is the true. It is true that mosses will grow more prolifically in the cooler, shadier place. And are the north sides of trees cooler and shadier than the south side? Sure, unless there's a forest gap overhead or in, unless that tree is leaning in a certain angle, unless there's a ravine over there. <laughs> there's so many other uh, factors that, that, that influence it. I think the only place that it would really makes sense as a wayfinder is in places that are totally flat um, with a uniform kind of forest vegetation. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so it might be in, and there's greater evidence for this in the boreal forest, There is more moss growth on the north side of the tree, but only in those circumstances of Mm. of flat terrain and homogeneous vegetation. So, no,
0: bring a compass instead. (laughs) Bring a compass. Your moss is not your GPS. <laughs> uh-uh. <laughs> um and I wanted to ask before we get into listener questions a little bit about um about your writing because it's kind of surreal to talk to you because I've listened to your audiobooks because you you narrate them, you read them and you're so you have such a wonderful voice and cadence. Um but you know when you when you first decided to write Gathering Moss, um you know what what really moved you to take that that sabbatical and and put all of this work into words
1: you know ali it really came from a certain kind of frustration of only writing for peer-reviewed technical scientific audience in that i've spent so many wonderful years of my life learning from mosses of just being with them and when i test a hypothesis and report on it in an article for the Bryologist. everything that I've learned had to be boiled down into data tables and p-values. And there was no room in that kind of writing for wonder or for talking about the amazing little things that you see and the things that the mosses have to teach you. And there, there came to be a place where ironically as a, as a as a scientist i felt like i couldn't really tell the truth by using only scientific writing and so having been given this privilege of of spending my uh, career among mosses i felt like i really needed to do justice to the mosses mm. and and um, tell a little bit more about how they live their lives and their in, in incredible ways of being and lessons that they have for us. So I set myself this goal to see if I could write in such a way that people could fall in love with mosses. Yeah. Um, and uh, that was really my intent. Tell the truth about mosses in such a way that that these overlooked Ancient, wonderful little beings um, would get a chance to tell their story,
0: oh, and you—you you even personal experience and observation and setting and uh, an atmosphere so well, um, as well as you know your your history and your indigenous culture, which uh, braiding sweetgrass also just um, hit the New York Times bestseller list too, right? A few mm-hmm. months ago. Congratulations yeah. on that. Yeah. Thanks. Um, you know. Um, can you tell me a little bit about what that's meant to you to get to express that to a more public audience than, than, you know, just your students or, or other biologists? Yeah, it has been so gratifying
1: and, um, admittedly very surprising, um, uh, to see the response to, to both of these books in particular, Breeding Sweetgrass, um, for me it has been so hopeful because I really have this sense um, with both Gathering Moss and Breeding Sweetgrass that those books are are, are meant to awaken something in readers this, this sense of wonder for sure but also the sense of wisdom um, of the living world the wisdom that plants have for us and I'm so gratified to know that people are open to that idea, um, that they're open to think about learning not just about plants, but learning from plants and and willing to to walk that path with me as a writer, of of trying on these different perspectives of let's look at the world through the lens of indigenous ways. Of being, um, let's look at the world through the lens of a tree or or a lichen, and what might we learn? And it's it's just been so rewarding to have readers from so many different places and cultures and experiences um, embrace that, and it mm-hmm. makes me so happy to think that the the plant's stories get to be shared so widely and that it might
0: ignite even more stories of people and their relationship to to plants i got 16 plants and uh, i have so many questions from listeners obviously we're not going to get to all 316 of them oh my goodness and <laughs> people are, i hope <laughs> there's some overlap <laughs> there's some overlap but people are excited um and i'll just dive in if that's okay you bet Okay, so we will get to those questions in just a moment. But first, a word from sponsors who make it possible for us to donate to a cause close to the heart of Theologist. And this week, a donation is going straight to SUNY's College of Environmental Science and Forestry's Center for Native Peoples and the Environment, which was founded by none other than... Dr. Robin Kibber. So they are located within the original territory of the Haudenosaunee or Iroquois Confederacy with a mission to create programs that draw on the wisdom of both Indigenous and scientific knowledge in support of shared goals of environmental sustainability. And the center includes a significant outreach element that's focused on increasing educational opportunities for Native American students in environmental sciences. Uh, There are also research collaborations, partnerships with Native American communities, to address local environmental problems. There are scholarships and fellowships also available. We're also sending a donation per Dr. Kimmerer to the American Indian Science and Engineering Society, whose goal is to substantially increase the representation of American Indian, Alaska Native, Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islander, First Nation, and other indigenous peoples of North America in the fields of science, technology, engineering, math, and other related disciplines. Now, they were founded in 1977, and they have awarded nearly $12 and counting in academic scholarships. They also offer internships, professional development, conferences, and more. So first donation was to the ESF Center for Native Peoples and the Environment and another donation to the American Indian Science and Engineering Society. Thank you for the heads up on those Dr. Kimmerer. So a donation went to them thanks to some sponsors who you may hear about now. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Do you know what that means? It means I won't be making soup over a hot stove. I will be making Factor because they are fresh, never frozen meals that are dietitian approved, they're ready to eat in just 2 minutes, and watch out, they're delicious. I was like, are they really as good as people say? I have some neighbors. One of them's a nurse, one of them is a firefighter. And yes, they're both as attractive as they sound. They're like, "Yeah, we love Factor meals." And I was like, I bet you do. You're gorgeous. Boom, tried them. I was like, these are delicious. <laughs> They're also good for days when I'm lazy. They have 35 different meals. You'll always have new flavors to explore. I have never had a factor meal that I've been like, nah, they've all been so good. Restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon and shrimp and blackened salmon. Also way more healthy and less expensive than takeout or ordering it. So there you go. Trust my hot neighbors. Head to factormeals.com ologies50 and use the. Code ologies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code ologies50 at factormealscom ologies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Bon appetit, you're welcome. This episode is brought to you by Merrick Pet Care. And y'all know I have a little dog named Grammy, which is short for gremlin. And y'all help me name her. And there's nothing that we like more than seeing her happy, which means tasty dog foods. And Merrick has been crafting high quality dog food for over 30 years. They were founded in Hereford, Texas, but Grammy doesn't care about that. She cares about smushing her face in it and then licking the bowl. And I don't blame her because they use real ingredients and home style recipes like real Texas beef and sweet potato or Grammy's pot pie. Grammy's like Grammy's pot pie. Get away from it, it's mine. I also like that on the bag they show what's in it and they always use deboned meat, fish, or poultry as the number one ingredient. And I think Grammy appreciates that. So check out Merrick online or in your local pet store and look for their new packaging with real ingredients shown on the bag and inside it. Yum, 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 yum. Oh, KiwiCo. We love you. Kids love you. Parents love you. Uncle Allie's love you here's the deal. So whether you're staying at home or you're heading out on some summer explorations, KiwiCo is inviting kids, also kids at heart, that's you, to enjoy their first ever summer adventure series. So kids from two years old to teens can receive six hands-on science and art project kits over six weeks. They have something for everyone. They have different topics for each age, whether your kid wants to explore space or learn about dinosaurs. And I've heard from my parental friends that summer can be a little challenging to keep the kid busy. Kiwi goes like, we did the legwork for you. And the Summer Adventure Series is this personalized experience with super fun activities like a bottle rocket kit where kids can build an actual bottle rocket. And you can either receive all of your summer adventure crates at once or weekly for six weeks. I think it's so amazing that they have different crates for different ages. Everything from the great outdoors that has like giant bubbles or a window garden to a trebuchet kit for ages 9 to 14. An entrepreneur where you can do textured clay projects. If you have kids, if you know kids, keep them occupied and learning and having fun this summer with KiwiCo. And you can get 20% off your summer adventure series at kiwico.com slash ologies summer. That's 20% off your summer adventure at k-i-w-i-c-o dot slash ologies summer. Oh, have fun. Oh, hi, it's me, the lady that checks a bunch of scholarly articles before she believes anything, Allie Ward. And I feel like we are similar in that we have a fair amount of skepticism and we like to dive deep and find out what the actual facts are. This is why when it comes to any kind of supplements, I enjoy Ritual, which is a female founded B Corp, meaning that they're holding themselves accountable to not just the company, but also to the health of people in our planet. And they're clinically backed essential for women at 18 plus multivitamin has these high quality traceable key ingredients in bioavailable forms that are clean. Only about 1% of supplement brands are USP verified and Ritual is one of them. So I like being able to trust what I'm putting in my body. From an aesthetic standpoint, I'll also tell you that Ritual are beautiful little vitamins. They look like lava lamps and they taste like mint. So taking my Ritual is part of my, I guess, morning ritual. I, that's probably why they named it that and I didn't even think about it. Anyway, no more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. So get 25% off your first month at ritual.com ologies. You can start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash ologies for 25% off. Down the hatch. Okay, and now on to questions submitted by beloved patrons. Let's see, there's one uh, first-time question asker. uh, Sigwani Dana uh, says, I am Penobscot, a tribe from Maine, and I also teach high school science, and I find that I feel like I live in two worlds, and they often clash. Um, How do you mentally bridge indigenous culture and intuition with Western science? and I hope I, I read that earlier and I tried to make sure I pronounced it right, but I'm not sure if I did, and I, I will re-record it if I didn't. No, it was perfect. It okay. was
1: perfect, yeah. Um, and I'm really grateful for for that question. And I think one of the ways that, that I try to bridge that, that I work both in my own writing and with my 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 own teaching, is to think about the fact that within indigenous knowledge systems we recognize that there that human people have at least four different ways of understanding the world certainly with the intellect absolutely mental way of, of processing and generating information we also have physical knowledge from observation from measurement right from sensing the world but If we continue around that, think of it as this medicine wheel model, we have the knowledge of the mind, the knowledge of the body in two of those quadrants, but then we have the emotional intelligence, and we have spiritual knowledge, spiritual ways of knowing. And all of those ways of knowing are valid and important. They're like different tools that you deploy for different purposes, for different questions, that you might have. So that's a very holistic way of thinking about knowledge as embracing all of those ways. But in Western science, we've truncated that. In Western science, we privilege the knowledge of the intellect and that which we can measure and very explicitly set aside emotional and spiritual knowledge and say, that doesn't count, that doesn't matter, that's, that's not the real valid knowledge. Um, and so the scientific way of knowing is a subset of indigenous knowledge. And that's the way I try to um, present it, is is that one is a subset of the other. Each of them has these powerful ways of knowing, engaging different tools that we as people have and the real key to navigating that that boundary of two worlds which i experience and understand is is to to think about them as as different gifts of different tools and, and when you have a true false question the scientific ways of knowing and hypothesis testing that's a darn good tool for a true false mm. question But what if your question is bigger than that? Then you need not only what is true, but what is right and what is meaningful and what are the implications of it. And then the the holism of indigenous knowledge um, can bring you to wisdom rather than just information.
0: Ah, That's great. So to learn more about this, you can look up medicine wheels, which can also represent the four directions, north, south, east, and west, or the seasons, spring, summer, winter, fall, the elements of earth, wind, water, and fire, or those four aspects of mind, body, emotions, and spirit. Now, if you are a non-Indigenous person, and you would like to make sure that your naturalist teachings touch on Indigenous knowledge in the right way, patrons Ira Gray Olivia Deborsier, Aunt sophie Karen, Schmidty Thompson, Liz Ropke, and first-time question askers, Lena Mack, Bridget, Gwen Kelly, and Sayada Darcy. All submitted awesome questions, wanting to know if you think there are any good tools for, um, for non-Indigenous folks to sort of incorporate that into their teaching or their botany courses or you know if they're if that's something that uh allison bray says what are some ways that non-indigenous naturalists and educators can engage with or teach about traditional knowledge about native plants in their area without appropriating native cultures Mm -hmm. yeah excellent question and um i think
1: that this i'll I'll return to that to the prior question because these ways of knowing that we might call indigenous ways of knowing of, you know mind body emotion spirit those are human ways of knowing mm-hmm. um, you know <laughs> um and so bringing one's full humanity to being a scientist and teaching science is um I think, really important, but more specifically to the question of how to teach about indigenous ways of knowing without appropriating. Um, One of the most important things to do is what we do in Western science as well. And that's cite your sources, right? Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Acknowledge where that knowledge came from. And um, not to portray it as one's own, um, but to give full credit to the, to the people who created that knowledge, who, who, who learned these things, passed them on. Um, and um, to me, that is, a, is the first step, is to know where that knowledge came from, and, and to, to honor it, and, and essentially cite it um, the, the way that we, that we do in, in Western science. Mm. I think it's also really important to, um, when we're avoiding cultural appropriation, to have an authentic experience of engagement with place. You don't need to say, well, Native people tell us to be grateful for um, the gifts Mm -hmm. of plants around us. Um, Yes, that's absolutely true. But the way that you manifest that gratitude should be in your own cultural framework. You don't have to take another way of showing gratitude for for the gifts of the earth you can show it your own way Mm -hmm. um and so coming up with authentic expressions of your own relationship with the living world is a way to to make your experiences much more powerful because they're your own and it um, avoids cultural
0: appropriation as well Mm, that's a beautiful way to look at it By the by, I listened to some of Gathering Moss sitting on a rock under an oak tree in unceded Tongva territory in Southern California. Now, 10 out of 10, highly recommend enjoying her dulcet voice on a blanket, watching squirrels, maybe on your city balcony, looking at a bee waggle its butt, or on a walk through the woods, even while finishing your taxes. Really, actually, no bad time or place, come to think of it. Anyway. I have a, a. This is a funny question. Um, Rebecca Pancoast says, first time question asker. Um, when I was little, I always imagined a patch of moss would be the most magical and comfortable place to take a nap. Um, what species of moss do you think would make the best napping spot? And Emily Roth asked also if you've ever slept on a bed of moss and if it's comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> the answer is yes i sure have
1: <laughs> <laughs> and you know i'm not the only one um, of course um, moss as bedding is is a, a common traditional practice and even linnaeus you know the so-called mm-hmm. father of western botany anyway um mm-hmm. as if before linnaeus people didn't have botany. <laughs> it's a different story. Um, but Linnaeus um, uh, is said to have traveled with a bedroll made out of uh, Polytricum juniperinum, um, huh. a, a, a wonderful mossy bedroll. Um, so yeah, I've, I've taken a nap on all kinds of mosses. But one of the things to be really sure about is to think again about that notion that they're sponges. They're full of water. So I have had um, many a wet bottom by thinking, <laughs> oh, this will be a really nice place to sit. And like, no, <laughs>
0: not so much. Slight like soggy bottom there. And, you know, to in terms of the things that are living in there, too, um, Lillian Ledford and Julianne Gibson had similar questions. Uh, Lillian said, this is an adjacent question from their friend Emily Ford. Do you squeal and coo with delight when you find tardigrades in moss specimens? And Julianne wanted to know, how many tardies can moss hold? Do you ever see (laughs) little moss piglets? Oh, they're just amazing, aren't they? Um,
1: Yes, I do squeal with delight. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Such remarkable beings. And um, in terms of how many are in a a little clump of moss, you know, that depends on the moss. Um, Tardigrades, especially like sphagnum moss, peat mosses, because they're consistently moist. Um, they also like the log mosses, those big, robust wefts that grow on logs. Um, but, but the shorter turf mosses will hardly have any tardigrades in them. Um, so, um, (laughs) the answer is the answer to most ecological questions. It depends. It depends.
0: (laughs) And if you're like a tardigrade, what's that? Oh, well, welcome to the best thing you're ever going to learn ever. So they are water-dwelling eight-legged, segmented micro They're also called water bears or moss piglets, and they look like kind of little loaves of bread, but with stumpy little legs, and then they have a face that looks kind of like a robot's butthole. I love them. They can live in space. They can live completely desiccated for long periods of time. Maybe they're aliens. They're not, but what if they were? Anyway, I've never seen one IRL, but now I know to go for the bigger, more robust longer soggy mosses. Don't mess with the shorter turf mosses. There's no water bears there. That's not where the tardy party is at. And don't be tardy to the tardy party, or your ass is grass. Hey, speaking of, Andrea, Kendall Burnell, Elle McCall, Lee, Sarah Lucchesi, Evan Jude, Amanda Mueller, whose name I say wrong every time I think it's Mueller. I'm sorry, Courtney Ryan, Jay Gordon, John Sandston, Ellen Skelton, Colleen B. Jessica Mazala, Amelia Hines, Maggie Bender, Emily Elaine Laborde, Samantha Heineke, John Sanson, Nicole Wackery, Leno, and Not A Cephalopod, all asked this next one. It's a good question. That's why so many people asked it. A bunch of people had questions about moss lawns, replacing your lawn with something more sustainable and less water hungry. Um, How do you feel about that? The answer there is also it depends. It depends. (laughs) Um, My
1: take on on moss lawns is that if the mosses come to your lawn, encourage them, help them become a moss lawn. But in most cases, it is very difficult and not sustainable to try to replace a grass lawn with a moss lawn because mosses will almost always lose to um lose out in a competition to rooted plants mm. and um there is this this movement to oh well let's go let's go buy mosses and in, install them in our lawns so that we can have a lawn that we don't have to mow or 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 water um, if those mosses were capable of growing in that setting they would probably already be there mm-hmm. um i i am really not a fan of the of the notion of of transplanting mosses from the places where they are perfectly happy and doing their work and and bringing them to places where they um, are not going to thrive you can create the conditions for them what i always say to people when they ask me about this if you build it they will come <laughs> If you make a place which is moist and shady and not conducive to, um, to grass or or ground cover, um, mosses will come there and they'll colonize it very happily. Um, but, but for the most part, transplanting, there's some exceptions to this, of course. Um, for the most part, transplanting mosses or using this moss milkshake method for getting moss lawns started um, is, is, I think, unfair to
0: mosses. Mm. That's good to know. If you're like, did she just say moss milkshake? Did I hear that right? She did, you did. So a moss milkshake is something that you can purchase in what looks like a milk carton, or you can just frappe up one yourself. You can just grind local moss and water with a little cornstarch, sometimes yogurt. People do all kinds of things. You make a bubbly slurry and then you just paint it on objects and cross your fingers. But remember, right place, right moss is the key. Know your moss. Also, some folks use this method to create alive murals. And if you don't believe me, you can Google moss graffiti. So is your home even cute if it doesn't have a moss mural? Also, speaking of Pinterest design aspirations, a lot of people, so many, including Amy Carr, Adam Weaver, Madison Johns, Molly Johnson, Lacey Ayrton, Addie Capello, Brittany Panos, Megan Lucian, Elle McCall, Catherine Warren, Kimberly McCall, and first-time question asker Secura wanted to know about this next one. What about bath mats? Have you seen this? I have. No, no, and no. <laughs> okay. And to summarize, no. <laughs> in conclusion, no. No.
1: <laughs> to, I, I put that in the realm of, of, of moss torture. No. Um, will, <laughs> yeah. will, will they absorb water? Sure they will. Um, will they like chemicals and soap scum and fluorescent light? No, they will not. And they will they will just die. Mm. Um, Leave them in the forest and
0: have a cotton bath mat. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And that kind of brings me to my my last uh, question from listeners. Um, Well, two people wrote in, Addie Capello and Carrie Simo. I'm not sure if those names are familiar to you, but they are both students of yours. Um, I was going to say, those are familiar names. <laughs> yeah. um, and Carrie is a former student, uh, says, I took biology and ethnobotany with Dr. Kimmerer at ESF 2008 to 2010. I love you, Dr. Kimmerer. You've been such an inspiration just mossum. Awesome. And they are a restoration practitioner in Boulder County now. And one of the questions that Carrie had was, is unsustainable harvest still an issue in the Pacific Northwest? Can we kind of discuss taking moss from one area and using it for, for something else? What should we know about that? Um, thank you
1: so much for that question. Um, because one of the the unintended consequences, of course, of people, Coming to love mosses is that they want to commodify them. They want to have them around, Um, and much of the unsustainable harvest of the epiphytic moss communities of the temperate rainforest in the Pacific Northwest is for horticultural work. You know, people are harvesting these old, beautiful moss carpets out of the woods and using them to line flower baskets or flower pots or in some cases sewing them onto fabric to make these moss carpets for displays and and so forth and um the mosses grow back really quite slowly it is um I, I think an unsustainable practice at the at the current level, and especially when you think of everything that's lost by taking them, all those invertebrates, the coral reef of the forest, you know, made to line a a, a flower pot. Um, mm. uh, that doesn't seem to me to be an an honorable way to to. Um, uh, uh, relate to to forest bryophytes, and um, there is a permit system in place in the Pacific Northwest to to regulate moss harvest. I am not current the at the moment state of affairs, but the, the last time I really looked into this, um, it was largely unenforced. There's, mm-hmm. there's there's a permit system, but nobody there enforcing it. So um, I. Again, it's something that I would say is an unsustainable practice. Mm.
0: Oh, and one more question. People are going to yeah. be so mad if I didn't ask. Um, uh, how, <laughs> well, Casey Sisterson wants to know Does the proverb, a rolling stone gathers no moss, bother you? In terms of a, as though gathering moss was a bad thing, I guess. I've never
1: understood that (laughs) (laughs) proverb. Somebody told me that what it really means is that if you don't stay put, you'll never get rich. You'll never accumulate um, wealth, i.e. gather moss. I don't know if that's really what it means (laughs) or what its original intent was. Um, But one of the beauties of, of mosses is their ability to remind us about being still Mm -hmm. about staying in place Mosses have a very high fidelity and loyalty to their home places which is why they don't transplant well, they want to live here Mm -hmm. um, not somewhere else they're very very specific and invested in their places and I think that's one of the wonderful teachings that they have for us Mm -hmm. so um Yeah, a rolling stone gathers no
0: moss. Okay. P.S. Side note, I always thought that meant that you have to keep on your hustle or else you'll just become green and hairy. And yes, I looked it up and it was originally supposed to mean that a tree that's moved a bunch bears no fruit. Also, side note, the Rolling Stones just got that name when a journalist on the phone was like, hey, what are you called? And Brian Jones saw a Muddy Waters album on the floor and read off one of the tracks being like, oh... Rolling Stones, like Jan Brady, George Glass style. Also, if you think that the A Rolling Stone Gathers No Moss proverb is confusing, consider also that in the 1950s, psychiatrists would read this idiom off to you, and if you couldn't explain what it meant metaphorically, they would diagnose you with schizophrenia, according to the 1956 publication Clinical Manual for Proverbs Test by one Montana-based psychological test specialist. What? This... Proverb doesn't even know what this proverb means. Anyway, I don't think they do that anymore because it sucks. Now, in that vein, the last two questions I always ask an uh, enneologist is, what is the hardest part about your job or about uh, being a biologist or what what's frustrating? Or even if it's petty or even if it's, you know, uh, deep or silly, what's one thing that is kind of sticks in your craw? Hmm.
1: I have never been asked that question, and I so love being a biologist <laughs> that I have a hard time thinking of of that. Um, I mm, honestly, I can't think of anything. Um, in in a way, I suppose the thing that frustrates me, is that that people overlook mosses? Mm. Um, there are times in 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 the plant ecology literature when uh, scientific literature when they're describing a uh, a forested community, they'll have a category called moss, <laughs> <laughs> um, and like really, <laughs> that's all you got. That's a that's a category kind of like. Tree, um, um, because mosses have so much ability in their specificity to tell us something about that place. Just to lump all these, you know, seventeen thousand <laughs> species of beings into a category called moss, is um, is frustrating.
0: Yeah, <laughs> that's. So valid. Yeah. Um, and then this is going to be hard, but what, what is your favorite thing about moss? What is the thing that just gives you the butterflies the most or is just makes your heart swell? Mm. Straight up their beauty. I've been looking
1: at mosses for, oh man, half a century. and And it's still gives me a thrill when I put my lens on them and think, oh my gosh, this, this perfection in in miniature. Their beautiful intimacy with water, their, their quiet kind of elegance, um, I admire them.
0: That's beautiful, that's awesome. I think there'll probably be a lot of people inspired to invest in a loop and I, no, I hope so <laughs> do you have one Ellie not yet no but I was like I I was uh, thinking about it and just looking at the the rocks in the yard and thinking oh gosh I want to see so much so yeah I think that's next on my list I yeah oh do it yeah absolutely I can't it's just this idea that it, there's this magical world that's right underneath you that yes. uh you know that if you just kind of open your eyes and, and get still enough to look Ugh, I love it yeah exactly yeah, yeah. Thank you so, so much for talking to me and, and doing this. And it, you've just been, you've been on my list as someone I've wanted to talk to for so long. And it it, it just, yeah, it feels surreal hearing your voice talk to me. <laughs> Listen to it so that much. person who reads you to sleep at night. I know, it's weird. <laughs> yeah, you've been with me on hikes and all kinds of things. You've done the dishes with me. So it's, to have an interact- interaction is really surreal. But thank you so, so much for doing it. So ask awesome biologists, great questions, or any smart people, stupid ones. And just know that there's a universe around you that is unfathomably large, and it keeps expanding. And then there's also world's In miniature, underfoot, just living out love and drama. Now, Dr. Robin Kimmerer's books, once again, are Gathering Moss, A Natural and Cultural History of Mosses, and Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants. Both are wonderful. So if you just fell in love with her words and her cadence and her outlook, get them in audiobook form if you like, and you can just have her in your ears as you go about your days. Uh, You can also become her fan at facebook.com slash braiding sweet grass there will be links to those in the show notes as well as a link to donate to the center for native peoples and the environment should you choose uh, you can follow ologies at ologies on twitter and instagram i'm on both as ally ward with one l come be friends uh, you can join the ologies podcast facebook group it's full of 14,000 very loving accepting humans and that's admin by the wonderful ernie michelle campbell talbert my friend, since we were four. You can also wear Ology's merch by going to ologiesmerch.com. Thank you to Shannon Feltus and Bonnie Dutch. They host a very charming comedy podcast called You Are That, and they help with merch, which is agonizingly delayed at the printer's warehouse due to the pandemic. So thank you for your patience. Um, thank you, Emily White, for cranking out transcripts with all the folks in the Ologies transcriber group. I love you all. Caleb Patton bleeps the episodes so they're safe for kiddos. Those and transcripts are up for free at AliWord.com slash Ologies extras. There's a link to that in the show notes. Thank you to everyone on Patreon for helping me pay these amazing people to help out. Also, Noelle Dilworth helps with all the scheduling. She's an angel on earth. Kelly Dwyer updates the website at AliWord.com and Jared Sleeper does the first pass edits and cuts out all my ums and other nonsense, and the wonderful Stephen Ray Morris stitches all the pieces together to make the moss quilt you hear today. Uh, Nick Thorburn of the band Islands wrote and performed the theme music, which I think we should get on the iTunes store. What do you say? Should we do it? Okay. Now, if you stick around to the end of the episode, you know I tell you a secret. And this week's secret is that sometimes when I eat a carrot, I eat like all the way up to the butt of it. You know, sometimes I'll even munch the butt a little bit. And I was telling my friend Micah about this once and he was like, you can do that? I'm like, I think. And anyway, he ate the whole carrot butt and then he got terrible food poisoning. And now whenever I eat a carrot up to the butt, I think, oh man, poor Micah, I probably shouldn't eat the top of the carrot. Sorry, Micah. Yikes. Anyway, I guess at some point you could just got to stop eating the carrot and get another carrot. Please nobody do this and get food poisoning. Okay, thank you for listening to this public service announcement. All right, bye-bye. Bye.
1: Experienced at foraging. I used to find edible mushrooms on my bath mat.
0: Hey, guys, Sean Hayes here. Jason Bateman, Will Arnett, and I had a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to sit down with not one, not two
1: is a must-listen. Don't miss out on this incredible opportunity to hear from three of the most influential figures in recent American history. Follow Smartless on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen to Smartless ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.
0: Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley.